but we built Siri for Apple's competition. When we saw the iPhone, that was the trigger moment saying, I now know what the world will be two years from now. It's time to take this idea I've had on the shelf for ages and bring it to the world for real. My next guest helped start four successful companies. He's the co-founder of Siri, which was then sold to Apple, and now it's on over two billion devices. He's also the co-founder of Viv Labs, V-I-V Labs, which was sold to Samsung, and now it's on hundreds of millions of their devices. He's also the co-founder of Sentient, which is a pioneering large-scale machine learning company. And he's a founding member of Change.org, which is the world's largest petition platform with about half a billion members. He's also an award-winning magician who's performed for heads of state and world leaders, for stadiums filled with students, and for Penn & Teller on their show, Penn & Teller's Fool Us. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you to this amazing creative entrepreneur whose name is Adam Shire. Check it out. Hey, Adam, welcome to the Making Magic podcast. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. Yes, this is going to be a fun chat. And uh, I think the audience is really going to enjoy this because uh, you've got a lot to share uh, with this with this show here, just to, based on your accolades and what you've been up to in your world. So um, I like to start off every episode with a story. And I always ask my guests to share with me what would be the first thing that you have ever created or made, and I know you're in the software world heavily, so um, maybe there's a piece of software, and all stories are welcome. Yeah, um, I started in the software world way, way back, long ago in the 80s, uh, when the Rubik's Cube was popular. I was uh, the, the East Coast champion of the Rubik's Cube in 1982 or something like that. So the first software program I ever wrote was um, a program to solve Rubik's Cube. So it was kind of a transfer from the mechanics of, of a cube into the software world and, and trying to get a, another machine to be able to figure out how to do that. So that was your first delve into the whole machine learning concept? Yeah, it wasn't really machine learning. It was more other aspects of artificial intelligence and, and specifically search. Uh, and heuristics, but it was the first, literally the first software program I ever wrote. So it was pretty basic. I mean, and in fact, it was literally written in the programming language, basic, lots of if-thens and go-tos. And, but uh, yeah, that was the first thing that I really created uh, in software. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask it, was it C++, but basic, what is the <laughs> difference between the two? I am not uh, well-versed in the software world. They're all about the same. Um, I mean, back then, so BASIC had line numbers, C++ and others didn't. So you would literally say your first state, you know, statement 10, 
would be print this. Statement 20 would be print this. Go okay. to back to statement 10. So it was very line oriented. Every line had a number and you had a lot of these go here, go there. So you could write really horrible spaghetti code if you wanted to. Okay. Okay. And and what, what did you learn from making this program, if anything? Uh, I think what I learned was you could create anything that your mind could conceive of. So when I was a kid, I think cardboard used to be my material of choice. I would see a toy on TV in a commercial and say, Ma, can you can I buy the toys? She'd say, no, but here's a stack of cardboard. It was like the cardboard you would get from a, a shirt when you dry clean your shirt. So it was white and smooth on one side and gray on the other side. So I could build things with tape and staplers and, but, you know, build all sorts of machines and marble, you know, crazy things and whatever. But software let me do that with just ultimate flexibility. Anything I could imagine in my mind, I could build at least a simulation of in software. So that was the lesson, was just how versatile and how I could literally take thought of anything. You know, I could have the architecture of a building, I could have a magic trick, I could do whatever I wanted and bring it into software uh, and make it work. And yeah, that was that was thrilling for me. Mm. Yeah, I due to my lack of software coding knowledge, I I I don't do as much of it as I want to, but the the little bit that I've delved into, like with Arduino coding, yeah. I, I really, you really see just, that's just lightly scratching the surface. Um, and then something like AI, um, you know, it's all just math and code that, and conditional logic. But like you said, if you know how to use it right, you can literally do or build anything. People can, right? People can shut down whole cities with just coding and Oh, absolutely. And you can have software learn to do things that you do not know how to do. I, I started a whole company about it because uh, at one point I was like, man, you know, it would be great. I'm, I'm sitting here scraping by. It'd be great to, you know, make make enough money that I could retire, or buy a house or things like that. So I said, how should I do it? And I looked up who are the richest people in America? And a huge number of them are hedge fund managers. And I said to myself, you know, that is the highest reward to risk job because they raise money into a fund. It's not their money. And then they have a two and 20 model. Their job is to basically bet, to gamble, to, to make, make bets in the stock market. If it does really well, they take a 20% uh, cut of profits above a certain amount. And if they do poorly, they take a 2% cut. But if they do horribly and lose all the money, it wasn't their money. I go, man, that is, mm. and that it's huge upside and really no downside, best job. I go, I don't know a thing about finance. I don't know anything about trading the stock market, but I wonder if I could write a program that learns how to trade on the stock market for me through machine learning. I'll say, this is what the inputs were. This is what happened next. Can you learn any patterns? When it's gonna go up, when it's gonna go down. 
I didn't even have to understand the rules that it came up with. And yet it ended up becoming a, a stock trading system that traded hundreds of millions of dollars autonomously without me knowing the first thing about, uh, you know, financial trading. So that it's amazing that anything you can dream of, um, you can bring to reality. And even some things that you don't know how to do yourself, you can teach a machine to learn how to do it without being a master at it yourself. So I, I think that's pretty wild. That That's mind-blowing. <laughs> I mean, I've heard of AI, and I've heard of the concept term machine learning, but I didn't know that it was you can a person can design something where the machine just kind of goes off on its own you're saying it just goes off on its own whim and it learns predictable patterns and it yeah in in most machine learning systems what you do is you give it training you say here is the input and here is the output i want here okay. is the input here is the output i want and there's math that it will adjust its internal mechanisms to basically learn the itself learn the rules that if you give this input i need that output if i give this input i need that output but in most cases the rules that it comes up with is math at an, a scale that no hu no human could comprehend when a neural network um learns how to do something whether it's self-drive a car or predict the stock market, no human can go in and say, oh, this one, this weight is 72 and that one's 49 and, and make any sense out of it. So it's an interesting quandary with machine learning because if you can formulate the problem and if, I, if you see this, I want this. Like if I see the road go that way, I want you to turn the steering wheel to the left. If I see the road go that way, I want you to turn it to the right. If you can formulate the problem into inputs and outputs and give it a lot of data, it's going to find a way. That's what machine learning does in deep neural networks. It'll find a way to get there. And the human who posed the problem won't understand the solution, which is good and bad in certain ways. You're not going to know when is it right and when is it wrong or really be able to debug it much because... It's uh, it's billions of numbers, and no human could really make sense of it. Right. That just at a, the most basic level for people who don't even have a grasp of any of this, it's kind of like a calculator, like yeah. your classic calculator, right? If you punch in numbers, it's the calculations are instantaneous, and that's just already mm -hmm. way ahead of what a normal human can do. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and it's got rules into how to do math, the calculator does. And in a machine learning system, it'll have rules that will output, just like the calculator is doing, your, the result you want given some input. Like, given this input, should I buy, sell, or hold? And it'll tell you one of the three, just like a calculator. And, and what was the name of that software program, if it's still around, the stock prediction? Uh, the, it was a company we started called Sentient. That was Sentient, it, okay. Sentient. It was one of the first large-scale machine learning companies. We had more than a million computers or CPUs uh, all networked together in a way that we could take these machine learning problems and have it um, learn the rules on its own 
uh, to solve certain problems. We applied it to finance, healthcare, um, agriculture, retail, commerce, all sorts of areas. So it was sort of a generic system that a machine could learn to solve tasks. And at the time, knowing that if you had more computers, you could actually do way, way more, um, exponentially more. We were one of the earliest to, to be investigating that. Mm. So you just had a big giant room filled with servers and computers, I guess. They were spread around the world. We don't have to fit them all into the same room, which is nice. True, a right? In, a lot of them in uh, China, actually. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I never... Yeah, right. Of course. Of course. I mean, if it's right, servers can can connect to another server anywhere. Duh, I should have known that. So, OK. Yeah, man. Uh, just technology and and the way that all works really like if once people get a grasp on that, it really can free up your human life while you're having your bots or your robots do all these other things. And uh, I was listening to someone talk recently about AI and robots and the future. And he made a really good point. I believe it was, oh yeah, it was a podcast from this guy, Naval. And he was talking about um, freeing your time and passive income related things. And he said, the rise of the machines is already here. It's been here much longer than people have thought and robots because the, the, these computer programs and these predictive programs that, that they are doing the same thing as a robot. It's just a software. You don't physically see the, the process. You just see the outcome on your screen. Yeah, that, that's right. A, a lot of everything that happens for us is actually all automated computers, like banking these days. Yep. You know, humans aren't in the loop as, it, as, it, as money flows at mass scale across the planet and, you know, it's not some human filling out and stamping paper and filing it in cabinets. Right. Everything is, is kind of automated and, and, and done through these computers now. That is fascinating. So with your, with your career spanning the, the time that it has, starting from ground zero with the Rubik's Cube solving program and going through everything that you've gone through, I always ask every guest is – like knowing what you know right now, is there anything, any advice that if you could go back in a time machine and visit your earlier self, the early Adam, the early career stage, any advice that you would give them now that you know what you know? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I'm pretty happy with my journey so far. And a lot of time people uh, will talk about mistakes and failure and things you could have done better. I don't use those terms. So I think I would go back to myself and say more, keep, keep following your passions, do more, you know, think bigger, um, you know, create more like, so it, it's, so I think I was doing those things anyway all along, but I would I would just go back and tell myself that this this creativity and this exploration and curiosity that you have, do that's what's going to lead you to everything good in your life. So when I look back on pretty much everything I've created from Siri 
the assistant to all these technology things. None of them were my day job when I started working on them. And they were all little side projects that no one was paying me to do. I had a day job, but I was working and thinking and building things that I was curious about and that I liked and thought was interesting, even if no one else did at the time. And certainly it wasn't what, what I was supposed to be doing per se. And then I found ways to take those side projects, if you will, and turn them into my day jobs. So people don't know, you know, they know me as a creator of Siri uh, when Apple launched it in 2011. My first version of Siri was in 1993. And to give context, the first web browser came out in 1994. So Siri was pre-web. And in fact, Siri was my conception. I said, someday there's going to be content and services around the world, on machines anywhere, even in China, where uh, you're going to want to be able to ask questions and get both tasks solved and knowledge answered. And so the idea of having hyperlinks and documents, meaning web pages to do that, mm -hmm. it's not how I thought of it. I thought everyone would have an assistant and you could just say, I want to know this or I want to do that. And the assistant's job would be to know where everything was, route your request to the right machines, bring back the results, present them to the user and help the user get the job done. So for me, Siri, my first version of Siri in 93 was my conception of the web before the web. Um, but it was a side project, a fun thing that I built for fun. And, you know, 15, 17 years later, I started it as a company, um, took those ideas and those prototypes, the early workings, raised money, and we built a free app in the App Store. We launched it. And two weeks later, Steve Jobs calls our office going, hey, it's Steve. Want to come over to my house tomorrow? Uh, he, he said he wanted to buy our company. We said, thank you, not interested, goodbye, and we left. Uh, he came back, true story, he came back, and then, um, you know, we ended up selling our company to, to Apple, and and the rest is sort of history, and then our, our new version of Siri came out that everyone uses. It's been on 2 billion devices. But how did that start? It was me going, this would be cool. I just want to try this. I think this should exist. No one asking me to do it, no one paying me to do it. I just did it on the side. So I guess the the biggest advice I would give my younger self is, you know, ex do more of those side projects. Create, you know, the importance in your life about building those funny little things that no one even knows what the value is yet. When I look back on my career, that's where everything I'm most proud of started. And, mm. uh, yeah, so I guess I guess that's the, the the advice I give. So do more of more of that, more of that side curiosity project. That was actually one of the better answers I've received um, because most people say I wouldn't change a thing because I learned. Which I mean, the general summary is of what you said is kind of that, but it was really nice hearing like this roadmap of how you got from point A to point B and uh, taking us on that journey, which is very important for people to understand. It's a journey that uh, I guess what, what, what you're saying here is that 
these side creative projects, these mini passion projects, is, is what keeps you going and what keeps the, drives the innovation. It is. I mean, no one, people never really think, where did Siri come from? And realize it was 18 years in the making from my first prototype to, to launch. And I built Dang. at least 50 versions over those almost two decades where I did learn and I did improve and I did try different things um, in order to get to the point where even though Siri is not everything you'd want it to be, and many of the earlier pro, uh, prototypes did way more, way more than mm. what came out in the original iPhone or what we have today in, in many ways. Um, but yeah, it's that exploration, creativity, and just passion that I'm exploring it well before there was any voice assistance out on the market. You know, it's just something I was interested in. So yeah, I, I just feel that it's it's important to have those projects. I have so many side projects that have not yet come out and seen the light at large scale, but it's not the right time for them. So I'm just kind of waiting for the world to change. Uh, timing is essential. I mean, if you think about it, if I had started Siri as a company anytime earlier, or probably much later than I did, it would have failed. But what I did was I created, I, I, I um, innovated, and then I waited for the right moment, and then I hit, hit it spot on. Same thing with uh, change.org. Today, change.org is the world's largest petition platform. We're gonna hit half a billion members um, sometime this year. So it's, it's really an important thing. We started it in 2006 when social networks were just in their earliest, earliest day, right? Facebook was still pretty much a university, uh, you know, Harvard University thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and MySpace was just taking off in 2006, um, but early. But timing it right that, hmm, if we're going to have social networks, social activism should, ha should have a role. So social mm. network for social activism should exist. And so Ben Rattray and I got together and we started this, this thing that 15 years later, um, you know, really matters at a large scale. But it started again as a hobby project. It wasn't a day job. It was a side project, right? And so, um, yeah, I, I'm, that would be my, my advice to my younger self, to do more of those and value them more, but also know that it may, you can't be impatient. You may have to end up waiting 18 years from your first exploration to when it actually comes out in the world, right? Or change.org, we started in 2006, it wasn't successful for at least five years uh, into it, which means we were for five years trying and trying and trying, and it was like no user lift. And all of a sudden, it went from 1 million to 10, 10 to 25, 25 to 50, 50 to 100, mm. and went like that. Um, and now we'll be about 500 million. But, you know, sometimes it takes longer than you think to get the traction you're, you think will be so obvious and, and instant. Really, really good points there. Like people, when, when people, when you're, the average public looks at a successful person or a successful product or project. They always go, yeah, I've got a great idea and I need the money. So let's release it tomorrow and we'll be rich, right? Generally, that's wrong. 
right? <laughs> Most of the time, that's not how it works. Um, you made several great points. Timing, right? Social network was just blossoming. Then you have this social change network that you created to go hand in hand. And I'm willing to bet, Adam, that if you, you guys started change.org now, for instance, results would be completely different because... Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a big believer in catching that wave. It's like a surfer, right? You know, if you're too early or too late, you don't go anywhere. But if you just hit the wave just right, you can ride a long way. And I have a process for that where I make predictions about where I think the world is going. And I work on things to kind of get ready for that. Mm. And then when I see what I call it, so those are what I call trends. My predictions are trends or uh, where I, you know, beliefs that I have about the world. And then I look for trigger moments. And when there's a trigger moment that confirms one of my thought about beliefs, now I know it's the time. So with Siri, the trigger moment was the iPhone. The iPhone came out. People at the time said, oh, this is going to be a fad. This is going to fail. Because only a phone company can make something as complex as a phone. Apple makes this little music player thing that's this big. It's so simple. They're not going to be able to pull off a phone, you know. And I saw this and said, oh, no, I've been waiting. In fact, I had been predicting that something like apps and mobile is going to come along and take off. Now I know two years from now, every handset manufacturer will be desperate to compete with Apple because Apple's going to be the most popular phone two years from now. So what will the competition need? It's, um, well, what are the flaws of the iPhone? The screen is small, it's hard to type on that little, it's not even a chiclet keyboard like the Blackberry, it was soft keyboard you know, on the screen. And the bandwidth was super slow, like every click on a web page would take like almost a minute with 3G. And I said, well, what if, so 10 clicks, for a purchase maybe, to get through a purchase flow, it's like 10 minutes, like no one's gonna do that. What if you could just pick up your phone and in one step without typing, say get me two tickets to the basketball game tomorrow night, and it says done, one round trip. That's what the competition needs to uh, beat what will soon be the dominant phone on the market. And then of course the irony, as I mentioned, Steve Jobs was the first to see it, and so we, but we built Siri for Apple's competition. When we saw the iPhone, that was the trigger moment saying, I now know what the world will be two years from now. It's time to take this idea I've had on the shelf for ages and bring it to the world for real. That is so, yeah. So, so many, so many great points you touched on. Um, the, the biggest, most important thing that you said was, was very much actually like the thinking of Steve Jobs, now that I think about it, because I do remember Steve said, well, when he was asked about um, something like why he created the iPhone or why he's creating these other products besides the computer, didn't he say something like, you have to know what the customer needs before they even start looking for it, right? You give the customer what you know they're gonna want and need, basically yeah. predicting like very systematically calculating, like like a programmer. Well, if this, then that. If this, then that. So I think if this happens at this time, 
than that. So, wow, yeah, all conditional logic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that is, yeah, that, that's, that's wild. So what about, what, what is your most recent project that you have come out with, that you've made? Um, well, I, I won't talk about that one because okay. I always start my companies in stealth mode. So people don't know, Siri means secret in Swahili. Okay. And a secret, like a magician, like a magic trick, it's something I know the secret of that others don't know yet. And so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of secrets. And like I said, Siri means secret in Swahili. So I have started a, a company. I work usually for a couple of years before anyone even knows I'm working on something. Uh, and then when I, and that gives me the time to really get it right and then launch it to the world. And we started with Siri. We started as literally our domain name was stealthcompany.com with a dash so I could get the domain name cheap. So I'm working on something most recently, um, but I'm not going to ready to talk about it. I will describe um, one kind of I know that a lot of your members are maker makers of a sort and um, magicians in many cases are interested in magic. I will describe one maker magic, my first maker magic invention that I created. That might be an interesting story. Sure. Um, It was when I decided I was gonna propose to my wife 25 years ago. And I knew her friends would uh, you know, want the story of, well, how did he ask you? What was it like? So I got in my head what I wanted to happen. I went to a magic store and I said, I want to buy the floating diamond ring trick, please. And they're like, oh no, we can't, we don't have that. We have this thing where, uh, you know, we can crumple a dollar bill on this invisible thread kind of thing, but it's light and it crumples and you can take it on a ring would be super heavy and it would bounce up and down and you'd have to tie it on somehow if you had a thread or a string or something like that. So we can't help you. But I I didn't give up. And I said, well, I I want, I see in my mind what I wanted to happen. I tried calling the restaurant. We were going to have our dating anniversary. And so I called the restaurant. I said, can I come in in the afternoon? I want to reserve the table for the whole night should be that maybe I could rig something up if I know ahead of time. And they're like, oh, no, sir, we don't do that. Uh, (laughs) You know, you're just going to get a random table like everyone else. And I'm like, okay, this thing has to be completely portable, right? I have to have instant setup, completely portable. So I'm gathering all these requirements. um, And on the day of, you know, the night of, we go to the restaurant uh, at the right time in the dinner, I get down on my knee in front of her. I hold out my hand, open it up. There's a ring and it floats up out of my hand right in front of her. I could put my hands all around it. She could put her hands all around it. I asked her to marry me and I plucked it out of the air and put it on her finger. And I knew it had to be completely clean afterwards because she was going to look at this thing. So I had all these requirements. I couldn't you know, find an existing one. And so that was like one of the, my first magical maker creations mm. where I had all of these constraints and I needed to figure out some method. 
that didn't exist uh, to make the magical dream in my head, you know, become real. And she said, Ooh. yes, and here it is 25 years later. So uh, it was a good, it was a good effect. So that, that's, it's not certainly the most recent thing I've been building, but it was yeah. one of my first maker and magic creations that I, that I did. And I thought that might be of interest to your audience. It is interesting. So that, that goes to prove the point that if you guys want to get, guys want to get, get, uh, secure the date or make her say yes, make sure you, make sure you think it out like Adam did. Make sure you. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, a lot of times magicians get into magic because they think it's going to help them get girls or whatever. <laughs> this might be the first time in the history of magic that it actually worked. You know. Well, well that's, that's actually, you know. <laughs> You're predicting, again, predicting the future because if you think about it from a woman's point of view or whatever your partner, whatever, however you want to work it, that the person would go card trick or ring on the finger. <laughs> I'll pass on the card trick. I'll pass on the, the three rows of seven. I'll pass on the coins across. But that ring thing sealed the deal for me. Yeah, yeah. Nice. There, there was a question that I don't normally ask that I'll, that I'll put in here because you couldn't really answer due to the secrecy of your new project. This is something I'm actually dying to ask you because you were t telling me about you were, all these other things were passion projects while you had a job job, yeah. like day job. Um, mm -hmm. How would you stay then motivated to work on these passion projects after spending all day at your day, day job and I'm asking because oftentimes people work a day job that they hate and they feel drained by the time they get home and almost depressed and they don't feel the creative impetus to start working on things. So what was, how did that work for you? Yeah. Um, so the most productive time in my life was the period from really 2007 through 2010. And I actually started three companies at the same time. While I, I had a day job and I literally started three companies and then finally left my day job and, and joined. So I was busy and I was juggling a lot. So here's how I did it. I took my work week and the calendar and I literally designed um, a schedule that um, fit all my needs. So I had two main companies. I had, a, I'll call it an A company and a B company. So I wanted to do two things. I wanted to have enough time for sports. I think it's important to do some physical activity and enough yep. time for family, right? So that was yep. it. Company A, company B, sports and family. So here's what I did. I woke up every morning at 5 a.m. I had two hours from five to seven for company B, my minor company. I then took a, a train ride, a one hour train ride from Oakland to San Jose, which was flex time. So I could, I had a desk, I had Wi-Fi, I could work. So that time was either for company A or company B, depending on which one needed it more. I would get to the office. It's now not, it's so uh, it's now eight o'clock. I would work from eight to about 5.30 on company A. I'd take the one hour trip back and I'd get home around seven o'clock, so flex time. So that means two hours a day 
I have two hours every morning on company B. That's 10 hours a week during the weekdays. 10 hours of flex time that I can now put to company B or company A, and then a full 40 hours on company A. On the weekends, um, I would wake up at six, sleep a little bit later. I would do three hours before my family generally woke up where I would have company B. So that gave me another six, six hours in the morning. Uh, so every evening when I got home at seven, I'm off. That was family time, right? Help my son with his homework, have dinner, watch a little TV or whatever, go to bed around 11. Um, every weekend, so the mornings, three hours each before the family woke up. And then I would have Saturday, it would be all family time. Sunday morning, I would do some sports. So I'd go play basketball for two or three hours, and then mostly family time. So I didn't really work on that. I still had weekends. I still had enough family time, but I just carved it up. And the biggest thing where people, you know, struggle is the context switching. They don't know what they should be working on and and how and, you know, and, and when you, at the beginning, when you design such an ambitious schedule, it's it's hard, but within a, after a couple of weeks of it, it becomes habit. You literally just adapt to it, right? And, and then you just drive through it for two years. It was like hyper productivity. You know, I'm managing two companies plus family, plus getting my three hours of basketball on Sunday. You know, I have all weekend pretty much for family, every evening after seven for family, and I still do these companies and manage to get, you know, something like 26 hours a week for company B and 40 some hours for company A. Mm. And so I designed what worked for me, got it into the habit, and then just wrote it out for two, three years. And that was the most productive I've ever been. Mm. So I hope that helps. It does certainly help because... Well, okay, so that explained how you were able to squeeze it all in. I guess, I guess the other part of my question was, was there a time that you felt demotivated to work on the creative side projects because you're more focused on earning a living with the main job? That's, I guess, what I was meaning by that. Yeah. Um, usually when I get frustrated with my main job, my creative needs increase. Mm. And, you know, so I, I was working on a great job. I, I was leading the largest AI project in U.S. government history. So $250 million project. But there were politics. There were. And so I was kind of frustrated and feeling stifled. And that's what led me. I literally made what I call a verbally stated goal, a goal that I will tell everyone I meet. This is what I'm going to do now. I said, in 2007, I'm going to create five projects that can impact users in 2007. And I, mm. I would tell you that if I went to a holiday party, hey, Adam, what are you doing? Five projects that can impact users. And, and that, that need to create came because I was not that happy in my day job, right? Mm. But then my next goal was out of those five, take a major and a minor and make them my, get, figure out how to make them my day job. And that's why I could start, I started companies, startups. And in fact, three of those projects, the third one was change.org. So three of the projects started as companies at the same time. But now that 
they were my pro I was passion projects turning into my day jobs, my mm -hmm. two day jobs. Uh, I liked them and I, I was all in on that. But, you know, so I, I would say there's in life, there's an ebb and flow. Like there are chapters in your book of life. And if you're in a good spot and you're feeling happy and balanced and satisfied, my advice is write it out. Enjoy it as long as you can. And But at some point, you're going to change. You can, you know, people say even if you're in heaven, you'll get bored eventually, right? <laughs> Um, so at some point you're going to change, you're going to have new needs, new growth you want, new frustrations from this, whatever. Mm -hmm. For me, those types of frustrations lead me, give me fuel for my side projects and passion. And then I can survive my day job because I'm also getting that, you know, getting, feeling creative and put, having an outlet. Um, so it's not usually too hard to get the energy around that. And then I, I usually try to transition and see how do I make this thing that I've been thinking about and building into what I do full time. And, and if you can do that, then you're happy again for a while. Until the, until the next disappointment, the next temporary yeah. ebb and flow. Right, exactly. Got it. All good points to be made, I hope. Hope my audience was listening to what he said because I mean that that stuff is really hits home I think to a lot of people and it's very deep it, it requires I think a lot of self discovery a lot of self -refl reflection on what do you really want out of life what yes. what kind of impact do you want to make and then lastly how serious are you about making that impact and like like you just said you you purposely said I'm going to wake up X amount of hours earlier to make sure I can get this in and still meet my other obligations and still make my family happy because that's another common problem. People become obsessed with their projects and then they ignore their family. They ignore their health. They ignore things that are pretty high up on the priority list and then it all kind of crumbles away. So really good points there made, Adam. Thank you. Um, what about your favorite what would you say is your favorite project that you've worked you've done in the past i'm going to assume it's siri but i might be totally wrong i'm very proud of siri uh it's the most famous thing i've done but it's um and i put a lot of heart into it and loved it um but it's also one of my biggest failures um so because i imagined it to be so much more and I think entrepreneurs are always unsatisfied, and that's what keeps them moving forward. If you're happy in life, if you're if you think everything's great, no need to change anything. If you're frustrated and want to, you know, so Siri was great, but I imagined the internet, the web, and even though Siri is famous, it's not really important unless you're visually impaired paralyzed, there's a few kind of disabilities, you know, disabled populations, auti autistic in certain cases, then Siri is important. I have a friend, a magician friend who's blind, Richard Turner. Mm. Uh, he um, uses Siri for everything. It's his gateway to communicate to the world in the electronic world, right? So in general, I'm proud of Siri. 
Um, but for most people, it's somewhat of a novelty, somewhat of a utility, but not important. Um, Change.org for me is a much more important project. Uh, I'm very proud to have been there at the beginning of it. I was, you know, Ben Rattray is the CEO and founder, and I was the first technical guy he met. Um, I helped build the first version of the system, but all of the success, you know, I was now off doing Siri. I can't take really any credit for what change became, but I'm, I'm so proud of having been there at the start because change is important. I mean, literally every hour of the day, maybe even every minute, there are victories that happen that matter to people, that changes their lives in big ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I can talk about some of those, but it's an incredibly powerful and important tool. So I'd say what's the most important thing I've been associated with? I would pick change.org. Uh, Viv Labs, which I sold to Samsung, we got the technology on for hundreds of millions of devices. Um, the technology was among the coolest we ever deployed. It was crazy how amazing what we built was. Uh, we built a system that when a user asks a Siri-like request, mm. rather than just being a simple request that's hardwired, hand-coded in a programming language by a human, it was an AI who would write its own code on the fly to handle that request, which is like, Crazy. crazy, which is crazy. And that means if if I'm asking a question and you asking a, the same question, we may get very different behaviors because you have different preferences. You have different services that you care about. It's combining information from across different services. Nothing like that has ever been launched at Internet scale. And we did it. Now, it didn't have the commercial sec success that Siri did, largely, I think, because there was zero advertising that Samsung put behind it and some various issues. So it didn't, wasn't as successful commercially, but from a technical point of view, wow, we did some amazing things. So I guess that's three answers. I, I'm, I'm very proud of what I did with Siri and Siri was a lot of my vision, you know, over the years, I contributed a lot to it, mm. but I'm frustrated that it fell short, the, the, what the, the version people had. Change.org, I didn't have that much contribution, but I'm so proud to have been part of it at the beginning, earliest days. That is powerful and important. And then Viv Labs, some of the coolest technology I think ever created, and the travesty is most people won't know know about it because it's not marketed well, and, and then people left and it fell away. So I felt the opportunity, and but just from the pure, maybe I'd say maker, creative, I'm like, wow, there, there was some unbelievable stuff we did in that. In that. Mm. So there's three answers. Which is something I think that thing or, Steve Jobs knew a thing or two about from the whole marketing standpoint. Um, never mm -hmm. having met him, yes, he um, did. I did read his uh, big, thick uh, book uh, about him, the, the autobiography or whatever. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and it was, he was marketing wise just as much of a genius as he was with all the software and hardware 
Um, oh, more so. He, he yeah. was not really the technical guy, although he was quite technical savvy. But remember, Steve Wozniak was the guy who built the Apple computer. Steve Jobs marketed it. Steve is a magician. And when you went to a product reveal, yes, you were not going to a, a technology show. There were no dashboards where here are the competition, here are the features. We do check, you know, the, the competition does check, 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 but we do all the checks, you know, none of that. When you went, people talked about Steve's aura and it was all about emotion. And what is magic about? It's magic is the feeling of wonder, right? That's one of the definitions of magic. It's when you experience feeling of wonder. And Steve brought that into, you know, using technology, but he brought that to people. And it was literally a magic show. People, I, I got to work with uh, Steve Jobs for 18 months before he died. Mm. Actually, Siri launched October 4th, 2011. Steve Jobs died the very next day. Mm. And his admin wrote and said he was, he cared so much about Siri he was clinging to life to see the launch of Siri. I mean, he was holding mm. on to see it. But uh, uh, when people ask me, who reminds you most of Steve Jobs? Mm -hmm. I think people would be surprised with my answer. I say David Copperfield. <laughs> and they're, both of them are billionaires. Yeah. Both of them are, um, they're obsessive to create great things. And both of them don't really live on their past. Uh, I know that they're, you know, David, he still has this need and desire to push forward to greatness going forward. And Steve Jobs, like the first day I met him, he didn't care that he had reinvented the computing industry, the music industry, the film industry. That was all in the past. He was desperate to succeed. There was a fire burning in him uh, to, to do something important. And I, I think David Copperfield has that. But for me, those elements, the, the magician in him and the desire to be great and important um, are two things that for me, David Copperfield and Steve Jobs, they, they're very similar in that way. Yeah. Yeah. They're both perfectionists. Yes. And that's how perfectionists operate. Um, and yeah, the, their, their results, their work speaks for itself. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about different successes of Adam Shire and, and, and you touched a little bit on some failures, but I know you said you don't like to use that word. And I totally understand why after what you said, um, is, is there any project that you're okay talking about that you would say, because I don't want people, I don't like to sugarcoat the whole creativity entrepreneur and romanticize because it's already romanticized enough. And it's like, oh, yeah, just start a company like magic and you'll have this passive income rolling in <laughs> and just, you know, put your head back and lean on your chair and, and at the beach and everything will be OK. Yeah. <laughs> so with that being said, is, is there any project that that just totally blew up in your face and was just like this big epic uh, fire dumpster fire thing that, that you're okay with sharing. It's just, you had to abandon. Well, there've been times when I thought 
something would happen. Like, so in 2004, I made 10 predictions for the future. I talked about trends and triggers. Mm. And then 10 years later, so I said 10 predictions for the next 10 years. 10 years later, I stood up on stage and I scored myself um, on how I did with my predictions. So these are, it's not like a company I did. So it turns out my best three predictions made in 2004 directly translated to companies. So number one, I said in 2004, which was non-obvious, I said social networking is going to take off and go mainstream. Now, at the time, I'd never heard of Facebook. Um, LinkedIn was kind of niche and just for workers. And there was Friendster that had about 13 million, but it wasn't a big deal. So that was like a, a bold claim. And I, I wasn't sure in it, but I had my reasons and I put that out there as one of my predictions. I, I talked about big data, like data moving to the cloud and machine learning. Once you get all the data together, machine learning would now take off in a way that it never could have before. Mm -hmm. So that was a prediction. And then I had this whole thing about a virtual personal assistant that was going to you know, help you manage all your information. So those were my three best predictions. But there were other predictions that I was like so confident in. I was like, oh, well, I don't know about that crazy social networking idea. That, that seems iffy. But there were some that I was sure made all the sense in the world. And yet even today, you know, that, uh, what is that, 18 years later, still haven't come to, to fruition. So in a sense, it's a dumpster fire of a prediction. Yeah. Or maybe it's just not the right time yet and it will happen. One of them was, you know, at the back in 2004, Netflix was still doing, was doing recommendations, mm -hmm. uh, but it was always based on what everyone thought. We think people, you know, Everyone has voted, it was, it was called recommendation engines or personalized learning. You know, if you like this, you're gonna like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the mass. Like, okay, that's good. Um, and I believed in social networking because it's about peer-to-peer -peer relationships. I know you're an, you're an expert maker. I know you're an expert magician. If you tell me a maker thing or a magic thing, I'm gonna believe it a lot more than some other one who's not as skilled in those areas, right? Okay. So for me, I thought social networking uh, was all about your trust relationships along different dimensions. So my prediction was, of course, those two things would merge. Meaning, I don't care what most people think. <laughs> I want to. I want to get recommendations from people I know and that I trust in certain dimensions. If I have a friend who's a foodie, I want to get food recommendations from that person. If I have a friend who's an expert magician, sure. I want to get magic recommendations from that person. So I thought by this point in time, all of those recommendations and suggestions, and even mm -hmm. that, would, would be mediated through my social network and my trust relationships hasn't happened. I mean, what we get instead is like spam bots filling up, you know, Amazon and Yelp, you know, for everyone. We have social networks that took off, but, you know, it doesn't influence the ads or the recommendations or suggestions that I'm seeing hardly at all. 
So I'm looking, man, I was so sure. Like it just made so much sense to me. It happened. So there's an example of, you know, I still think it's a good idea. I still don't know why it's not the case. Mm-hmm. Maybe it just hasn't happened yet. So that's why I say it's not a failure. It's just a surprise or a learning that it hasn't happened yet. Mm. I wish I had that kind of life where if, if that's like the one, like if, if that was a dumpster fire failure for me, I would be thrilled because I've had far, <laughs> far worse, uh, wow. unfortunate things happen. I've done, I'm a tech, I've done demos that have failed. I'm a oh. magician. I've done magic tricks on stage. I'll, I'll give you a dumpster fire magic thing. Sure. Uh, during COVID, I, I, I watched 150 virtual shows in a, in a year and a half, probably more than any living human. Because <laughs> okay. magicians don't have the time. They need to work on their craft. And regular humans don't, don't watch five magic shows a week for a Correct. year. Right, <laughs> right. But I performed a few. And so I tried, I did a magic uh, as. I, I tried, uh, I, I was asked to perform magic on a virtual show. And in the audience for that show, I had Jeff McBride, one of the greatest magic teachers in the world. Right. Kevin James, one of the mm. greatest magic inventors in the world. David Copperfield, you know, <laughs> listed as the magician of the century, watching on that virtual show and more. I had four effects to perform and three of them died spectacularly. Oh, just like, like no recovery, like no recovery other than smile, nod and keep going. Right. Three out of four failures with Copperfield McBride and Kevin James watching. Ouch. But you know, I, I don't, I don't, dwell on those. The the funny part was afterwards, David Copperfield felt so bad, I think, he (laughs) called me on the phone and started telling me about all the worst dumpster fire moments he's had in magic. Uh, And that was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. In a way, it was a bad experience to, to fail so spectacularly in magic in front of such important people. Um, And yet it was it was such a wonderful moment afterwards. He told me on one of his shows, uh, he literally cut off his finger in the middle of a show, picked it up and said, I've got to go to the hospital now. (laughs) And I go, at least I've got all my fingers. (laughs) So, you know, there's always going to be dumpster fires and, and the, the tech and, you know, magic and, you know, little things will go wrong or else you're not trying, right? It's not like that has never happened to me. But for me, it's more like these are big vision kind, you know, like if I had clarity of vision and I was wrong, and it turned out I didn't start a company in that area. Maybe if I had, it would have made the thing come true. Just like I imagined there would be a Siri and then I went and created Siri. Or maybe it was, it's still just a wrong, bad idea, and I would have gone down that path and failed. But so for me, I picked that one as like, man, I was so sure, like sure enough to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't. So it, it didn't turn out that badly. But uh, anyway. Yeah. About failure. 
No, that that's and and that just reminds us all about the duality of everything. Just starting with your magic trick experience, the you you basically earned the the subsequent phone call basically by <laughs> the sweat, blood, and tears that that were shed during that performance. But that's turned out to be a really good thing. I mean, who else would get a call like that and just really get that kind of personal? Yeah, it was and, wonderful. And uh, I'm sure it inspired you to, to you know, take whatever you were working on up up ten more notches after hearing yeah. what what you heard. So it's not all bad, folks. We can. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I don't regret. So obviously, in that show, I didn't go with safe things. I could have gone safe, and I was trying new new inventions, new technical creations, and. You know, you're stuck in COVID and I didn't have a, a ton of time to perfect and perform. So I took a risk and it was high risk, high reward. And sometimes your risks fail and you have to be prepared to accept the failure if it fails. But yeah. I, I don't regret having tried it. And and I, I, I so again, it was a, it was it was a forget the word you use, but it was a spectacular failure. But. You know, it was a good experience, all in all. Awesome. No, that, that's great to, to hear all that. that. That's really great to hear. And, and when, when you are creating these, these wonderful pieces of tech wizardry, um, I'm sure you've had times where you have these happy accidents. And I always like to bring these up uh, with my guests because I, I have a number of stories. Uh, Matt King and other performers have stories of, they're interacting with audience members, and then the audience member says something that they weren't expecting, and then they respond ad lib, and it gets a great reaction. And then, you know, like Matt King would say, I, I got to keep this in the show, and I got to know, just work it into my script so it happens every time. Yeah. So, so is there any, anything, Adam, that you've created by accident that turned out to be this spectacular success? Um, I'll, I'll give one Siri story. Sure. Uh, that I think is is kind of funny. Um, so when we built, we were a startup, and that was acquired by Apple. And we, the original Siri, did all these domains. You could say find restaurants or get the weather or get my flight information, whatever. Fifteen mm. different domains. But we saw early on that people. Um, that people wanted to ask Siri other questions like, Siri, do you love me? Siri, what color are your eyes? Siri, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Which is not the 15 domains or the things, the functional things we were anticipating. So I had written these little handlers, kind of like, yeah, 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 get back to work, kind of like, you know, pretty boring answers, but I had to have handlers because people would ask these questions, the system needed to say something. So then we go to Apple and we had the idea of sprinkling surprise and delight into the system. So the idea was you wouldn't just say, if you said, what's the weather, it wouldn't just say it's raining or it's gonna rain tomorrow. It would say, it's gonna rain tomorrow. Don't forget your galoshes. Like it would, you would add a little extra spice, a little extra humanness or you know, surprise and delight into the interaction. So we hired a guy um, 
whose job was to go through our functional domains and sprinkle in a little what we call delight nuggets. Huh. And he came across all of my handlers for these funny, and he goes, well, none of these responses are funny. And he just cleaned them up. And so the surprising thing is that when Siri launched on Apple's phones, Apple was not aware of all of the personality and humor and funny <laughs> things that was in Siri. Because the QA, like all of the spreadsheets testing, the, you know, we need to test this and test that and was all about weather and timers and maps and whatever. So no one was testing or really thinking about those between the cracks moments. So Siri came out and someone said, what color are your eyes or will you marry me? And then all of a sudden Siri said something funny and people loved it and it went viral. And so on late night TV shows, David Letterman, all this kind of stuff, they're talking to Siri and what cool things can you make Siri? And Apple freaked. They had no idea this was in there. They like to control their message. Yeah, yeah. And this was so. like coming out of the blue. So in a way, it was an accident. It was me who had written these little handlers. Someone else came along and sprinkled in funny responses. No one was really aware, but it really made Siri, Siri, right? Mm -hmm. And part of the reason it went viral, I think, was because of the that humor and character that it had. Uh, and then the next two quarters, the next six months, just selling the iPhone 4S, uh, which was the iPhone 4 plus Siri, Apple broke every profit margin record. Their stock price almost doubled. Mm. They passed Exxon to become the most valuable company in the world. So in a way, you could say this was sort of like a happy accident to your question that wasn't exactly anticipated or planned for, and mm -hmm. Apple didn't even know it was in there. And yet, boom, through the roof, sales, margins, and fame. Um, so yeah, there's an example of sort of an unexpected, um, happy accident side effect that, that made, that changed the world in some ways. That's hilarious and awesome at the same time, because I, uh, I myself am still, uh, discovering new responses from from Siri, and it reminds me: Did it ever come across you when you were coming? You guys were coming up with Siri, like the Magic Eight Ball. Remember the classic? <laughs> yeah, Magic eight I ball? remember. I remember. Yeah, I don't know if that's in there or not, <laughs> but it might be. Just just reminded me, like that the Magic Eight Ball is kind of like the low tech original. Version of theory, yeah. Question and answer, I mean, but it's like a little die inside. So yeah. you're, I don't know, you probably yeah. get like eight responses where series right. always got, be something like, maybe so, or <laughs> definitively not. And, and you would ask some question, shake it up, and it would give you like a coin flip, but more with more character. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's, See, the, the, the overarching thing that we all can learn from this, my listeners, viewers, is like, you should probably like, right? I, th I think it's like kind of like, if you think it's a good idea, why not, why not test it? Why not, mm -hmm. e you know, why not make whatever product or service you're coming up with? Try different features, right? Put in different features that you might think are insignificant, but then all yeah. of a sudden through testing, 
your audience just goes, hey, this is, this is it. This is great. And then you go, wait a minute. I wasn't expecting that. And then you keep yeah, it. And, and sometimes it's, I, I would say two things. One is people want to relate to their software a little bit more. Right? Yeah. So if you can find ways to make, you know, software, software, you're like, I'm just a business application. But, but even through a GUI, software has personality, even if it's the absence of personality. So thinking of the thing you're creating, whether it's software, or maybe if it's hardware, or whatever it is, asking yourself, what persona, what personality do I want this to have? Is it fun? Is it sober? Is it, you know, business? With Siri, we had to design a whole backstory and answer questions like, is Siri a man, a woman, uh, or a computer, or an AI? Does it know, you know, is it, or an extraterrestrial, right? What is it? Is it an Apple employee, uh, a fan of Apple, or, or does it not know about Apple specially? What, you know, all of these things or like this backstory, how old is Siri? Where did it come from? So we needed to answer these things. Now, if you're building a device or a business application, you know, maybe you don't have to know, is it a man or a woman, right? But it does have a personality and people want to relate and react to it. And, and so spending time on that aspect, the feel of it, like making it, more cute, making it more serious, that it, it will have more impact than you might expect. And like I said, with Siri, um, our, you know, conversation designer got it just about right and it resonated and then boom, greatest profits ever in technology history, right? So I guess, I guess that's one thing to think, uh, think about uh, is what you're building what is its personality? What is it saying? And spending a little more time thinking and polishing that might pay dividends. Agreed. Like, like a magician, when a magician is creating a routine, oftentimes uh, you talk about the internal dialogue that the magician is having, and then you could even you take it even further. What's the internal dialogue between you and the prop that you are manipulating? Mm -hmm. And the prop can have its own personality and dialogue with the magician, the performer. Uh, same thing goes to say with, just to bring this more to the real world nine to fivers, any product that doesn't have a human behind it, like a product that would normally seem boring, there, you know, try to think of what, like you said, personality you can give it. Another good example that I could think, not the world's greatest, but it's something that I remember growing up as a millennial playing with windows 95 in the early 90s the little paper clip yeah. inside of microsoft word that little paper clip character yeah, clippy. Mm -hmm. clippy was like when i was i don't know i was like three or four you know messing around on my dad's computer i didn't care about microsoft word i cared about talking about the paper clip but there's an example of getting it wrong <laughs> okay it's wrong please elaborate so people don't know this but the first viral video, this was before YouTube, before this, the first viral video was an I hate Clippy video ever <laughs> of any type. And people got so against and angry at Clippy. 
was and it's still like decades yeah. later a punchline and but there is some visceral anti-clippy reaction <laughs> and it's it's because it's just that thing they're trying to get the persona the personality right and people want to engage when you first see clippy you want to connect but if you don't get it right instead of being a positive like profit margin through the roof it can go the other way you get it wrong people will hate your product and will as we saw tell people in a viral way online that they hate your product so mm. so that personality design is a little tricky and you know a little dangerous but it can have huge reward or huge risk mm, i'm glad i brought that up because <laughs> great great one I was trying to, you know, be all positive and be like, yeah, this, you make this personality and it's going to help. But like, as you said, not always the case. You have to design, you have to spend a lot of time on that personality. Probably, I'm, I'm willing to bet y'all spend a lot of time beta testing different responses and questions. And We actually didn't much. No? We, we happened to get a really great designer. Okay. And as I said, the reason it wasn't tested is Apple didn't even know it was in there. Okay. Um, surprisingly, but but we got someone who just he had the right. He came up with the right tone. Timing again. Yeah, he just had the right. He had the, he had the right feel, and somehow the personality that he created resonated. Mm. It wasn't brash wasn't overly promising it had just this subtle self-deprecating kind of humor in certain ways there was something about it um you know that it just it just hit on and, and then there were many assistants there's a a, a well-known now i think stephen king well-known author i think stephen king wrote uh, alexa and google assistant try to be hip <laughs> but they're not. Siri actually pulls it off sometimes. Like he had something, a comment along those lines. I'll have to look it up. Um, but, you know, you can have the best designers at Google and Amazon who are great. It's hard to get it just right. I, I would say all kudos goes to the designer who's in charge of that. If he's listening, he knows who he is out there. I won't share his name. But, uh, you know, he did an amazing job and it paid off big. Mm. If you don't mind me asking, was it was it a comedy writer that was doing the writing of this, or just somebody who wasn't? You just happen to get it right. Yeah, he's a con he um, he's a user experience designer. He had worked at Apple long ago, and so this was like a return to Apple for him. So it's kind of a back to his roots. Um, but he's just you know he's an intelligent, well spoken. You know, he's funny, but he's not a professional comic. He's not a professional writer that I know. He's just, but he's a user experience designer who's extremely thoughtful, uh, you know, pretty well-educated, Berkeley, um, you know. Anyway, but he just, he just got it right. As far as I know, he's still at Apple and still leading the team around personality design. Mm, okay. And, and I'll just, I, uh... This is, you already know this, but just for my viewers and listeners that aren't aware, you mentioned a term, GUI. That's graphical user interface, right? 
Yes, that's right. Thank I just you. wanted to go because I remember yeah. reading yeah. about that and learning about it. The graphical user interface, just basically the the user experience, what the user sees and interacts with visually, right? Yeah. Window, like you talked about Windows 95, those windows that we're looking at on our computer every day, that's all part of the GUI, the graphical user interface, the mouse, the windows, the buttons. Got it. Got it. Okay. So all good stuff, Adam. Is there, I always also ask my guests too, is there anyone that inspired you to follow the path that you are, you have chosen? in life like any any so in your case software are there any software wizards that just really got you going or was this just something that you were naturally drawn to yeah i'd like to give a shout out to a mentor who actually is the inventor of the gui so good good uh good segue there um his name was doug engelbart and if i were to tell you you know, who is the, you know, if you were to say who's the greatest software creator of all time, mm. I'd say maybe the person who invented the personal computer, like the Windows, the mouse, the, you know, who would that be? Is it Steve Jobs or oh, maybe it's Bill Gates? If I said, wow, think about the web. The web is one of the most important computer things we have. Hyperlinks, multimedia documents distributed around the world and web pages. You know, who invented that? You know, sometimes people say Tim Berners-Lee, uh, video conferencing like we're doing now, right? Or share all this collaboration technology that we've been using in this past year. Who's the creator of that? Is it maybe, I don't know, Skype guys or whatever? Well, what if I told you that all of these inventions were created by one man? His name is Doug Engelbart. In 1962, he had the patent for the mouse at a time when computers were driven by holes punched into cards and fed into slot readers. He built the first interactive terminals mm. with graphical user interfaces that you could have windows, multiple windows, text editors. He took computing from a non-interactive medium into an interactive medium. He also created everything that we have in the web, multimedia documents, hyperlinks, all the collaboration technologies, and it was all beautifully integrated into one system. So he's by far the most, in my view, impactful person in the history of computing. But here's the reason why I want to shout him out. Uh, why did he create all this technology? And this will be a great point to kind of close on. He said in the 60s, someday, the world is going to be faced with complex, urgent problems. And he listed them, pandemic, climate change, hunger, poverty, human rights, animal rights, water, pollution, etc. He said, unless we get better as a species at what he called collective intelligence, we will not survive. And he thought that computers could augment human intellect that could help us think better and smarter and deeper together about not only small problems, but the world's biggest problems, right? These pandemics and climate change, et cetera. And that's Ooh. why he created the mouse, multiple windows, graphical interfaces, the web, 
video conferencing and more was to help us think more. So for me, it's been a challenge of mine, and I think he left it for all of us to, you know, find ways to build things that will help us solve these world problems. Um, he died a few years ago, even though so much of his vision had come true, he still was frustrated that now we all had a supercomputer on our desk with graphical interfaces and a mouse and the web, but we're still in his assessment, not able to think about the big problems any better. And so his challenge is yet um, unfulfilled, but it's kind of over to us to pick up the challenge to build on the work that he created and to, to help us figure this out. So that, that's uh, wow. the person who I think most inspired me to do what I do. Amazing. And besides a person, was there any what that inspired you to start writing this custom software? Because I'm going to assume that when you were much younger, like just going to school, or maybe I'm totally wrong. Was this something that started as a child and, and just you following uh, through? Like on? I said, I was 14 with the Rubik's Cube. And I was so interested in Rubik's Cube, I wanted to figure out how could I do a Rubik's Cube thing with this computer. But once I learned software programming and how much of a creative medium it is and how I could solve any problem, build or any dream, make it come true, yeah, um, I just fell in love with software. So I've been doing that all the way. And then when I met Doug, it really shaped, uh, in the early 90s, really shaped my views about what should I spend my career on? And so for me, things like change.org, which I've been involved with, is kind of a Doug-inspired project. How do you harness the collective IQ of the world to solve lots of problems? Well, change.org is one approach to doing that. So, um, yeah, so I've always fallen, I fell in love as a teenager with software um, and been inspired by Doug, you know, in the early 90s to try to help people do more, think better, accomplish tasks better. And everything I've done from Siri to change.org to Viv, it's all about trying to help individuals and groups of people be more and think more and do more uh, efficiently. And by Doug, was Doug somebody that you already named first and last name? I just Doug, wanted... Doug Engelbart. So that's the okay. creator of the mouse. Got it. Um, you can learn about him, I think, at DougEngelbart.org. Uh, if you want to see, he did a magic show of sorts oh. in 1968. He did, a for the National Computer Society, he presented something that was so revolutionary, half the audience thought it was a hoax. <laughs> and the other half of the audience had their lives changed forever. And the way to look this up, it's on the web and you can see it. It's 90 minutes. He does not have the charisma of a Steve Jobs, but you look it up by typing into, into Google or whatever, the mother of all demos, the mother of all demos. And he, it was Steve Jobs in 1968. You have to put yourself in the framework that computers were punch card machines because mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's black and white and it's a little bit dry presentation, but he shows things that we don't have today um, and it was working back then and it's it it was miraculous 
Okay, that is definitely something I'll be looking up, and I'll make sure that gets put in the show notes as well, okay. which which is a perfect segue as we wrap things up, Adam. Are there any uh, other resources uh, that you could recommend for people who are interested in getting into making magic with software and getting inspired that way? And then after that, please tell everybody where they can find more about you. Sure. Um one of in the maker and magic field, you know, I'm sure you've met Mario, the maker magician. Fantastic. You know he was first guest on this oh, podcast two years ago. He's, he's the perfect guest for this podcast. Uh, you know, he's uh, a hero of mine. He's recently writ, written a book all about building robots, um, really interesting robots. So I think it's that's a great resource for people who want to uh, be creators and builders um so yeah so I, I would say for magic and maker kind of things i'm going to point people go find mario's latest book uh it's wonderful um in terms of you know definitely go check out doug engelbart and dougenglebart.org and the mother of all demos i'm hoping people out there will be inspired to create software or hardware or whatever that can help humanity uh, face some of the complex urgent issues we're going to be dealt with. And if you're, if you want to learn more about me or follow what I'm doing, I have a, my homepage is adam.chire.com. So first name, not last name. Chire is C-H-E-Y-E-R. So, you know, you'll, you'll be able to see some of my technical creations there, my magical creations there. And um, just follow along on, on the little things I do. Excellent. And it's Chire, so I want to get that right. That's correct. Got it. Okay. I, I had earlier was saying it a little differently, and I'm sure that happens a lot. I want to make sure I get this right. Yeah, you've heard it from the source. From the source. It's Adam Chire. And uh, got it. And with all that being said, folks, man, my mind is definitely expanded. Uh, you just heard from the co-founder of Siri, Viv Labs, Chain, uh, one of the members of Change.org, and the there was one more amazing thing, the Sentient, Sentient, yes, the machine learning company. Wow. A um, lot of food for thought for people here. And Adam, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to be on the Making Magic podcast. And uh, thank you all for watching and listening. And if you guys enjoyed this, feel free to subscribe, click the thumbs up, notification bells. You you all know what to do. And uh, feel free to enjoy this as well on the Apple Podcast app and all the other popular podcast platforms. So y'all have been listening to and watching another episode of the Making Magic Podcast. And we'll see you guys on the next one.